Hi, welcome to the Red to Black podcast. Here, you will learn how to invest in highly profitable private businesses to create abundant financial freedom. If this topic interests you, we invite you to subscribe to our channel. This podcast is hosted by Werner Minchel, ex-Marine aviator and current real estate investor, and Mario Parzino, current Marine infantry officer and business investor. Okay, good evening, Mario. How are you doing this evening? Can't complain. Hawaii's uh, still 82 degrees with a slight wind. Okay, so what are we discussing this evening? Okay, the overall session discussion is going to be how do you avoid fist fighting a business model? And we have six topics to discuss. Number one, we're going to discuss how the majority of your money is going to be made in better business models. Number two, we're going to talk about how to destroy covert contracts. Number three, we're going to talk about tactical empathy. Number four, we're going to give everybody a two hands update. Number five, we're going to talk about gold, Bitcoin, and NFTs. And lastly, number six, we're going to talk about how to travel from Beaufort, North Carolina to St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands in class. Sounds like a fascinating conversation. And for all you listeners, if you'd like to skip ahead to any section in this video, you can go down below to, this, to the description and we'll have the minute markers there. So Mario, let's get started. Okay, so we both have uh, friends, two friends who attended the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business. We're gonna call them the Frenchman and the Lone Star. And they both uh, graduated the same time and they went off into two different paths. One went to the, one went to lower Manhattan and got into the beer business. And the other one went to Dallas or uh, Texas and got into the oil business. And it's kind of interesting how these both businesses were pretty miserable. They're pretty difficult businesses to go into. One was a little bit better. The beer business has slightly, slightly higher margins than the oil business, but it's still an incredibly competitive space. So here you have these two extremely talented gentlemen head off and go into these spaces where you're constantly competing with competitors over price. At the end of the day, the beer aisle is full of competitors. And ultimately, you can't distinguish your product and provide so much value that it's way outside the normal price range. Everything's floating within a very, very tight, narrow bandwidth of price in relation to the underlying commodities that go into that, that product. Uh, I think the Frenchman lasted approximately five to seven years in Manhattan, and he had enough, and, and he parted ways with the business. And our, the gentleman, the Lone Star, who's down in Dallas, he had to pivot out of oil and get into really technology to extract oil. So he pivoted sort of into a better business model. But both of these gentlemen realized at the end of the day, these businesses are extremely difficult to make a ton of free cash flow in. Warren, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it goes back to some of our past podcasts, which talk about a high profit margin business model which is how we define it is for every dollar you earn, you're making more than 30 cents. Now I understand maybe some people go down to 25 cents, 20 cents. You set the bar wherever you like. A business model that's based on a commodity that's not a high operating margin business model, you are making five cents. Now why is that important? Because when you have extra cash, you can do more with that extra cash, like reinvest in the business, pay dividends, and all sorts of other great things. So I think what a lot of people overlook is whether or not they're building their own business, investing in a business, or working for another business. What's the actual business model that they're getting involved with? That's super important because your upside will be a lot more if you're getting involved in a better business model. Thoughts on that one? That's correct, Warner. Whether you're going to invest in the business, you're going to work in the business, or you're going to start the business, there's going to be way more opportunity in the better business models as you defined it. For, for you and I, it's a business that can make more than the 30% operating margin. That's our bar. And we got that really from Oracle. It, our bar is if we can just go into the public market and buy Oracle, 
for a reasonable price, let's say a 7.5 on an enterprise value over operating income uh, multiple, if we can go get that for seven and a half years basically of operating income, we're gonna go just buy Oracle. We're not gonna do anything else. It's, it's a better business than 99% of businesses out there. Now, most of the time, you cannot buy that business for a reasonable multiple. So then that's why we're gonna go out and look at other businesses. But our bar, the bar that we have to, to, to hurdle over or that we'd like to hurdle over is Oracle and at least a 30% operating margin. Why do we do that? Is because those kind of businesses are drowning in free cash flow. There's way more opportunity, whether you're the employee, whether you're the owner or whether you're the founder, there's gonna be way more opportunities in the better business models. How do we get the title of this podcast? is that a lot of people get stuck into a business, whether it was by choice or by necessity, they're inside of a business and they're constantly fighting the underlying economics of that business. They're constantly fighting the business model, trying to improve it, working as diligently and as hard as possible to try to bring the business up so it's, a, it's above the waterline. They've got their face out of the water. Those businesses are just miserable to try to run and to try to grow and to try to expand. There's other businesses that are absolutely drowning in free cash flow, and it becomes a joy to constantly strategize and to think about how to move the needle in those businesses. That's where you want to steer to. Given the choice between a low margin business and a high margin business, you always want to steer yourself into the high, high, high margin business, even if it, if it means initially paying a little bit more or maybe taking a lower pay, a starting pay, maneuver into those high business high margin businesses and you'll do much better and your life will be much more full of joy than if you're in a miserable business model. Any last thoughts on better business models, Warner? Yeah, those are all great points. One thing I'd like to add is when you're in a better business models, you, you brought up the example of Oracle. I've looked at their 10K and for any of you who are not investors, 10K is basically the annual report. And in that annual report, using the annual reports, if you scroll down about two thirds of the way in the report, there, I mean, it can be anywhere from 100 to 200 pages. You'll see the balance sheet, income statement, and the cash flow statement. I go to the cash flow statement because I want to see what the company is retaining in terms of cash. And when you look at Oracle's uh, statement, you basically see it's, it's such a simple cash flow statement. They basically retain a bunch of cash, cash flow from operations, and then cash flow investing and financing. I mean, they're literally, it's a few line items. Now, those few line items are paying back dividends and then also reinvesting back in the business and maybe investing some short-term securities, and that's about it. Now, if you look at a company like EP, I think it's EP, it's Enterprise Partners, it's an oil company, they're their cash flow statement is a little bit longer because they're taking the majority of their money and they're reinvesting it back in, as you say, a rusty pipeline. And why do I give these two different examples? Well, Oracle is selling a database. They have customers that pay every month and these are big customers like banks. And Oracle is just getting these checks in the door and all they have to do is make sure that database is secure and that it's and the database is up and operational. Vice versa, the EP company, the oil pipeline company, they are constantly fighting weather, oil shortages, oil oversupplies, gear and equipment all across the United States. It's an absolute nightmare. So if you had to pick two businesses, pick the business that's much easier to run in terms of like labor and maintenance costs versus the business that has insane amounts of labor maintenance costs. What are your final thoughts? Yeah, that's right, Warner. Um, we, we know a gentleman who's put a lot of money into oil pipelines, and he's also made a lot of money outside of that business. And the far majority of his money, as, as, the, as the title of this kind of discussion comes from, the better business models, the far majority of that gentleman's money has come outside of pipelines, not from rusty oil pipelines trying to break even. They're really, the reason why there's a tax benefit, you'll see people say, well, this is a master limited partnership for an oil pipeline. They have to incentivize investment. It's such a miserable business model that they have to, the government has structured a tax loophole 
where you don't have to pay tax on these master limited partnerships or the tax rates are very low because it's incentivizing people to get into this miserable business. And there's also, you know, th these, these, are, these are kind of infrastructure pro uh, projects that help our country in a time of war or to have a very robust economy. You know, every economy in the world runs off of energy. So there's some incentives that aren't necessarily because they're such a bad business. It's just our country wants these strategically to, to have, you know, many options to get oil into our country. So pipelines are incentivized, but man, they're just one of the worst businesses to get involved with. Uh, conversely, you're right. Um, a Oracle database type business, they, they build that software once and they sell it millions and millions of times. And you're right. They've got some expense running those, those warehouses full of servers. But uh, at the end of the day, man, people, the banks, the airlines, any type of company that runs logistics, they pay their bill. They pay that bill to Oracle every month because that's how their business operates. Um, the last, last thought on the better business models is that it's okay. It's okay in life uh, to get involved in a business just to learn. It's okay to go into a business. In fact, it's far better to go in and, and, and work as both of us have done in the restaurant business as an employee to realize, man, I never want to do this as an owner or as a founder. I never want to buy a restaurant or never want to start a restaurant. Uh, it's okay as, when you're starting off, it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to go in there and learn. Okay. I'm thinking about this down the road when I'm 30 or 40 or 50, I'm thinking about buying this business. Go do 90 days in that business. You can, you can volunteer, you can walk into any restaurant, volunteer to be a dishwasher. They're going to hire you. Um, it, it, it'll teach you a couple things. You'll, you'll, you'll eventually pick up, if, if you're smart, you're going to pick up on the underlying economics of the business. And you're going to look at how is the, how is the owner? Does he look, does he look young? Does he look well-rested? Does he look like he's full of uh, joy and happiness or does he look beat down? It'll tell you a lot about the underlying business. Finishing up that topic, let's, let's roll over to destroy covert contracts, communicate your exact intent. What, what was your intention behind that, that topic? Yeah, so we can get we can go through life where we we lack courage to call things out. Um, what we're doing is we're basically saying, well, if I do this enough, other people will, will be able to read my mind. If I take out the garbage enough times, other people will read my mind that they should be taking out the garbage. And you're trying to create this covert contract with maybe your significant other, maybe employees in your business. The reality is, is what Warner and I operate off of is trust tactics but telling people our exact intent. It comes back from the Marine Corps. It comes from commander's intent. At the end of the day, we're very busy and we have, we have a very diverse and spread out business uh, organization. And we can't always be there to supervise people, but if we can tell people our exact intent, we can communicate our explicit intent. Even when we're gone, people know exactly what to, what to expect from us. or they, we, they know what they want. We want them to accomplish. And we can get into this pattern in life where we think people should just know. They should know better. They should know. No, it's, it's our responsibility as leaders. It's our responsibilities as owners. It's our responsibility as managers to tell people our intent. Any thoughts on that, Warner? Multiple thoughts on that. Great points. Two things come to mind what you were just speaking about. Number one is, is having a plan. And number two is a difference to define what you're saying, difference between an expectation and an agreement. The plan, a plan for anyone who's out to create a plan for their business, it starts with measurable results, so they're measurable. The only thing that's measurable is a number. And number two, you have a set of action items. Some are effective, some are ineffective. The effective ones fulfill on those measurable results, and you do it within a timeline. That's how you create intent for your employees. You do it in numbers. Now, some people may say, oh, numbers aren't you know they aren't sexy they don't motivate me well that's what's behind the numbers you create the motivation behind the numbers and then the numbers bring into the real world now going to the other part you were talking about which is expectations and agreements when you have a plan you have measurable results you have an agreement to execute on certain measurable results within a certain timeline now what you're talking about is an expectation is different than an agreement you expect something to go a certain way. The question I would ask for anyone listening to this podcast and you and me, have you voiced that expectation to someone else? And here's the key key transition from an expectation agreement. Do they agree to your expectation? Because once they agree to your expectation, 
then it becomes an agreement. So to think about this real simply, an expectation is focused on I, 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 I. An agreement is focused on two people out in the world that come together saying, I'm going to execute on this number in this certain amount of time. What are your thoughts on that? So two thoughts, Warner, is trying to eliminate singular pronouns. When we use singular pronouns, I, me, mine, people kind of tune you out. If you can transition and get, get comfortable using plural pronouns, we, ours, the companies, our businesses, the teams, that's a more powerful language. Ultimately, our language and our relationships are what's going to be, what's going to make us successful. It's not, we're never going to do it by ourselves. The only time to use a, a singular pronoun, I or me, is when there's a mistake. Take responsibility for the mistake. Ultimately, as the leader, you're responsible for everything that happens or fails to happen. So to, 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 for people to connect to your language, when there's a mistake made or when there's something didn't go right, that's when you use a singular pronoun, I, me, mine. That's my mistake. I made that mistake. That's on me. When we're talking about the team, when we're talking about our commander's intent, when we're talking about how we want to drive this business forward, we use we, ours, the team. That's a much more powerful way to communicate that. The most, the most powerful thing in the world is relationships. And the second most powerful thing to cultivate relationships is our language. Thoughts on that, Warner? Yeah, multiple thoughts. First thought is I want to make sure that the listeners are related to why we're talking about expectations versus agreements, creating measurable results, commander's intent. It's because once you found a high operating margin business model, the next due diligence step is to look at the company, the management. And there's obviously multiple other steps. It may not be your next step, but it's one of the steps in the process of doing due diligence on a company. And that management, you want, you want to ascertain if that management has put these, this type of leadership into place where they are creating plans with measurable results and they're actually executing on it in a teamwork fashion. And the leadership, the leader will always tell you what's going on. The leader is like the head of the snake. It'll tell you exactly how communication is going throughout the rest of the company, how, how management's going, how logistics are going, everything. So getting in front of that leader or finding out about that leader will tell you how everything else is going. Because like you said, he's he or she's taking responsibility. So the whole purpose of this is to determine do they have a, a system, a management system, where they create plans and then they execute with agreements versus expectations? What are your thoughts on that? So I get emails all the time from people trying to pitch me. They're trying to pitch me their business, whether I, they want me to invest in it or they want me to buy the whole thing or they want to sell me their services. And I, I look at their language. The first thing I do is I look at, because someone someone has screened these emails. This, is, this has been approved from someone even probably way at the top. This is an executive approved marketing campaign. And I look at the language and it's the, that's the most powerful thing they can communicate is, is, is are they about themselves or are they about, are they about me? And I, you just tune it out. You, you eventually, you, you can start screening these emails and quickly look through. And I, I basically look for I, me, mine. And those are just, I'm just, it's, it's, so, it's so clear that that person is about themselves. And it just, it makes your, it makes you kind of, wash over that email. And then you look at a you, you look at someone writing about you, your team, your business, your future, and you're connected to it. You're like, wow, this person, they don't even, they might not even know who I am, but they're thinking, they're thinking in the third person or thinking outside themselves. They're thinking about someone else and how they can help others. That's, that's ext extremely powerful marketing tool. And it's extremely powerful inside of a business is if you can enroll people, you've used that language Warner before, is how you cultivate a team mentality. How do you enroll? It could be even be your spouse, it could be an, a, a teammate, or it could be a larger group. How do you enroll people into a measurable result, an action item, a goal, a strategy? How do you bring a team into that? And how do you create that? That's an excellent question. And we're gonna, you gave us just another idea for another podcast or another multiple podcasts. We're going to break that down uh, in a future podcast. So anyone that's listening to this channel, we invite you to subscribe to the channel and we really appreciate your time and your effort tuning in. Now to add to what you're saying, basically 
when it starts with the environment in the business, as I discussed before, and as you discussed, if that environment's focused on you and teamwork, that will translate out into the world. I've seen what I've seen what you described in terms of emails where it's I or you. And what I usually see is someone will connect with me on LinkedIn. And then all of a sudden it's like, I can offer you this, I can offer you that. And basically what that is, is what I discussed before. It's an expectation. They expect that they're going to talk to you in a certain way and they're going to offer you something yet you haven't agreed to that. And that's where a lot of, a lot of salespeople, that's, that's why they're not effective in what they're doing. They bring in an expectation versus getting to know you offering you value and then down the future after they've known you say hey listen i see a gap in your game would you be interested in doing x y and z it costs this much nine times out of ten if they develop a great relationship with you it's game on so on that closing point let's move to tactical empathy how do you create tactical empathy and what what uh, inspired you to create that that uh, subject for this this topic yeah, this ties into the co- covert contracts well. So tactical empathy, it's talk, trying, to, trying to summarize someone else's position before you try to, to sell them. But before you're negotiating, before you try to get your way, try to understand the under, other person's perspective. So what, what we've learned from Chris Voss, who's an excellent uh, instructor on YouTube, he has a master class, and he was an FBI agent who did uh, hostage negotiation, international hostage negotiation in the FBI for over 20 years. He talks about which the, the most powerful thing you can get in a negotiation is a that's right. When someone's agreeing, when you've summarized someone else's position and they say that's right, that's the point in the discussion where you've, you've created empathy and you've created understanding. You've created a connection. That's the, the, that's the point where you can transition. You should be constantly talking about the other person, constantly focus on the other person until you get a that's right. There's a couple of techniques he goes through. Uh, these are these are like very simple techniques, but it could take you the rest of your life to master them. What he talks about summarizing people's position where it sounds like, it looks like, it feels like, and allowing them to correct you. No, actually, you don't have that right. It's it's actually this. Well, that's information. That person just communicated. You just had you built further understanding. Once you finally have cultivated that understanding and you summarize it correctly, you could potentially pull out a that's right. That's, that's super powerful in negotiation. So tactical empathy really ties into how do I enroll someone in an in a, in a idea? Well, I first I figure out what are their value propositions? What are their values in life? What do they value? Before I'm trying to get my, my way, let me figure out what this person is, is, is here for. Why are they here? What is their value proposition to this business? Why do they want to be part of this business? Why do they want to help grow this business? That's going to be so much more powerful to me to be to, for me to enroll them onto a goal if I understand what motivates them. Any thoughts on that, Warren? Yeah, those are great points. One thing I want to drill down into is the fact that most people, and I would say probably 99% of people, are not being heard on a daily basis. So, if you're effective, you, me, everyone listens podcasts. If you're effective at getting that's right continually, you will create an insane amount of relatedness, being related to that other person. Because all people want at the end of the day is to be heard. Some people could be in really challenging situations. Some people could be having a great day. At the end of the day, they want to know that you're there with them, especially if you're going to a business arrangement. Now, here's another Another uh, thing that Chris Voss talks about, the essential um, central communication is asking how and what questions and why these are so powerful. Let's say you and I are going to do a business deal up in the Pacific Northwest and, and we say, hey, we're going to do X, Y, and Z for you. We may ask them, they may be like, well, how are you going to do that? They may turn on us. How are you going to do that? And we're going to say X, Y, and Z. And then we're going to ask them, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? What do you do that? What it does, it creates this collaborative environment. That's what we're interested. What we're interested is, have you ever seen someone that's that's blocked? Actually, I was on a coaching call with a guy today that I'm coaching. I haven't shared with you this, Mario. But at the beginning of the call, he was completely blocked by going into the blockchain space. And I created measurable results. And by the end of the year, that he would he could decide if he wanted to 
you know, create his company by the end of the year or get a job in the Bitcoin space. He wasn't sure. And I, but I was listening to him and what I heard was he was unsure, yet he wanted to discover it. So that's how I was able to help him create this future for himself. But it was by me listening that he wanted to discover it. And when I created that, by the end of the call, he had this free aloofness to him where at the beginning of the call, he had this, this abrasive, like, I, I, it's hard to make a step forward. That's what we want with the people that we're, that we're connecting with. They're all dealing with something. And if you can get a that's right, you get into their world. And really what's powerful is support them, you and them seeing like this really juicy future that will create an aloofness and a vibrancy. Your thoughts? It's active listening. Tactical empathy is becoming an excellent listener. You're listening for their position. You're listening for their value proposition. Like you said, you're collaborating. When you ask, when you ask why questions, it's sometimes it can come off as accusatorial. You're accusing them. Why did you do this? It can come off a little negative, a how question. So getting to yes is the wrong answer. It's how. Yes is nothing. As Chris Voss says, yes is nothing without how. How is a very powerful question. We're, we're, we're trying to look for the why. We're looking for why is this occurring or why is this happening or why did this happen? But the, the, the route to get to that, the answer, to, to, we're looking for the answer to why. The route to get there, the, the most efficient way to get there is with a how question. It's, it's, it's diffusing. It's not accusing. It's like diffusing the energy down to how do we, how do we collaborate? How do we do this, Warner? How do, let's throw out some ideas. Let's, let's get creative. Let's get out of our survival mindset and into our creative mindset. How can we work together to create this goal? What are some things we can do? How can we move the needle on this business? When you ask those how-oriented questions, you're gaining, you're, the, the person is loosening up. They're becoming more comfortable with you. There's empathy. You're asking them for their opinion and their perspective and their position. And there's information flowing. And that's how you're going to cultivate a relationship. And you can't, you can't do anything as well as if you're doing it with a, with a partner or with multiple people to say like if you want to go fast go by yourself if you want to go long long distance go with a teammate absolutely true in business absolutely true in the military absolutely true with goals you can move faster by yourself but you won't get as far so when i look at tactical tactical empathy i'm really talking about am i being a good listener Am I understanding the other, other person's position? Because I can beat something. Anybody can be a dictator or a, a leader by, by tyrancy and be a dictator in, in how they communicate. But it's far more powerful for people to love working for you than fear working for you. When you have a team that actually loves doing life with you, they, they find some enjoyment. There's, you're fulfilling some one of their value propositions by doing life together. That's a much more powerful relationship than a relationship based on fear. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, those are excellent points. And what we've been describing, what you've been describing is the empathy part of tactical. And with the empathy, as to recreate what you're saying, the empathy is opening up the onion of that other person. They have this facade front layer that's protecting themselves. And by getting their opinion, which most people are not doing, I mean, they're not because they're just, they're like a, a bore. They're ramming their opinion in someone else's mind versus ask them what their opinion is. Now, the tactical part, that's really interesting. The tactical part is once you've asked these how and what questions, what you're ascertaining from the other person is how are they making their decisions? You're listening intently. Are they making decisions in a way that's workable for you or I to work with them, right? Or, or if we're buying a company, we can listen. Well, how do these guys make decisions? Are they making efficient decisions? Are they making logical decisions? Are they making direct decisions? Through that how process, now that as we're listening to it, we really get into the effectiveness of their decision-making process. And that's essential. That's the tactical part. It's not a tactical to take someone down. It's how are they, how are they tactically operating? And that's what we that's that's the next level of listening. When you're listening, you're not just listening, you're listening to see how they are making their decision. How do they go from A to B to C? Are they going from A to Z? That's essential information that that can tell you, hey, do I work with this guy? Do I not work with this guy? Or, hey, oh, wow, this company's got so many gaps in its decision making. You and I can come in, fill those gaps and take it to like five or 10 different levels higher. 
Any finishing thoughts? We've got about a minute left to the next topic. This is just a more powerful way of doing life together with your with your with your teammates is to, to bring in tactical empathy. If you spend the rest of your life trying to improve your tactical empathy, you're gonna make tremendous strides with your negotiation, with building teams, with building goals, and with accomplishing your goals. It's extremely powerful to one, be a listener and two, communicate effectively. Um, what we what we're both working on. Uh, with the deal up in, in the Pacific Northwest is understanding why this company hasn't been able to expand. It's a wonderful brand. It's got a wonderful following in a very niche market. Why haven't they been able to expand that brand nationally? That's a, that's a question in my mind. It's a why question, but a more powerful way of talking to the owners is how do you plan on expanding this business with with digital marketing, with with reach? How do you buy reach in this business? That's a more powerful way of understanding what is he looking at? How is he looking to this problem set? And is he willing to collaborate? Is he willing to, does he want to grow this business? Does he want to expand? There's there's the first the first step of that deal is really understanding what's the basis behind this regional brand and not a national brand. That's kind of my last thoughts on tactical empathy and specifically the Pacific Northwest. I want to move into uh, topic number four and give you a two hands update, Warner. So I spent uh, a couple days this week with two hands and I had some thoughts about if this ties into business as well is, is how to maneuver when you're in a bad, when you're a bad spot, how, how do you get out of a bad spot? Um, states, states are going to be very desperate for tax revenue and they're going to hammer guys that aren't able to move. If you're a dentist office or if you're a landscaper and your book of business is in a community, you've worked 20 years to build a book of business that doesn't travel like Oracle. Nobody really cares where the data is. The data servers are located or where the data is physically located. If a municipality or a state or a country tries to punish Oracle or tries to inflict, <clears throat> they try to inflict damage on Oracle's business through uh, regulations or very intense taxation. Oracle can simply shift the data across a board, an inv invisible line in the sand and, and be in a new tax jurisdiction. Two hands right now is in, stuck in the state of Hawaii and he's, he's looking at potentially buying a business out here which has a book of business, has 70 pools, or it has a, it's a tree trimming business with lots of clients, lots of corporate client, clients. But those, those businesses don't travel well, as we know. Um, we both have, we have assets that at the end of the day, they don't pick up. We can't pick them up and move them. What are your thoughts on that, Warren? Yeah, those are excellent points. My thoughts on that are 100 thoughts about business were flooding through my mind, to be honest with you. And in terms of mobility, especially in this world, this chaotic world, because what's happening is we have individuals at the top of the food chain, the political food chain, without getting too much into politics, that are are straight up corrupt. I know because I live in, you know, I used to live in California, and I go back and forth. California, New York, where you are, Hawaii, it's just corruption. I mean, it's just literally people are siphoning off money at the top, and it's sad to see because it's is destroying the whole state. And as it gets more and more corrupt, they increase their taxes and they come down upon the individuals such as two hands that are unable to move. And one thing about two hands and the inability to move, it's really an inability to see what's going on in the future. That's essential. Like you and I have talked about, if you create a plan with measurable results, action items, and timelines, you're looking forward into the future. You're going, hey, this is my mark here, and now I'm back planning out how do I get there. If you do that planning enough, you'll start seeing there's certain locations and, and locales where it's not beneficial for you to keep your business because you're going, hey, my goal is to make this amount of revenue, well, all things being equal, 50 states, can I do more revenue over here in Wyoming or Florida or Texas, or can I do in Hawaii? The answer is going to be Wyoming, Florida, or Texas because they're taking less of your money. So then you ask, well, if I go to one of these states, maybe I can move my timeline up quicker. So it's all about the plan in the future, and the mobility enables you to move more effectively within that plan. What are your thoughts? Absolutely, Warner. That's uh, correct. 
Two hands is not looking out into the future. He's looking, he's kind of stuck in the present, which is okay. There's, there's some value in, in just making it through today, you know, focusing on just getting through today and making sure everything's taken care of. And, and we'll focus on tomorrow when it comes. There, there is some, there's some, there's some gravy and value to that. I'd say that it's okay to start a business in a bad state. Sometimes that's where you can grow a brand like Los Angeles, California, like the amount of brands that have been started in LA is incredible. I mean, Hollywood, you've got food, you've got technology, you've got the port of LA, you've got some amazing, amazing scenery and some amazing and talented people. And sometimes if you're going to go start a fashion brand, you might have to go into LA and get the thing off the ground. You're not making any money when you start a business. And, and usually initially there's several years of very little bit of money being created on a taxable basis. But the difference between the businesses Warner and I are looking at and Two Hands is looking at is we would have no problem moving from Central Oregon to Texas. If the, if the state of Oregon wanted to penalize our business for success, we'll take our employees, we'll, we'll, we'll pay them to move, we'll pay their, their moving expenses to move down to Texas and we'll simply buy another factory in Texas and we'll, set, we'll, we'll, we'll do a better job. We'll have a better, nicer factory and we'll, we'll push this business right down into the heart of Texas. No problem. So we have leverage. We can tell politicians no. That's the most powerful word in the in the world is no. We can tell people no. You're not going to do that. If you if that regulation passes, we're leaving. And, and simply, there's there's so many communities that want jobs. You can go to Nashville. We can go to Charlotte, North Carolina. We can go to Florida. We can go to Texas. We can go to Arizona. We can go to almost any state that wants people to move there and say, hey, we want to we want to set up a factory. Can you can you show us some property? some interesting industrial parks that you're opening up. We'd like to put in a factory here. That's a no, that's a no brainer with that business. You buy a landscaping business, you buy a pool business, you buy a tree trimming business in the state of Hawaii. It doesn't move well. Your book of business, a dentist office, the book of business is located in a certain area and the state knows that he would do very well to buy. Let's, let's call him uncle Glenn to go down to the yacht club, which he lives by and buy uncle Glenn, a an adult beverage of choice and to learn about what uncle Glenn had to do to survive for 30 years as the number one electrician, the largest commercial electrician in the state of Hawaii. What did he have to do to fight the state to keep his business alive? That, that would save him tremendous amounts of effort and energy is to simply have, you know, an adult beverage with uncle Glenn and just learn those lessons vicariously. Yeah. So those are great points. One thing pops into my head, and it pops into my head from topic number two and number three, which is destroy covert contracts, tactile empathy. In both those, those topics, we discussed being direct in your communication and then developing relationships by un not understanding, by knowing where the other side is coming from. One thing I think most entrepreneurs, businessmen, businesswomen, they overlook is their relationship with their local government. Because whether you like it or not, what you're talking about is in the state of Hawaii, Hawaii, you are going into a relationship with the state of Hawaii. They're taking money from you. You're abiding by their, their rules and jurisdictions. And I don't think a lot of people understand because it's not, you're not really talking to them on a daily basis. It's not like a relationship like you and me or, or, or my wife or my other family and friends. So it's like, oh, this this government, this taxing authority, this municipal authority is over here somewhere. And I think what you and I are really pointing to is what is the relationship between local businessmen and that authority? Taking it a step further, if you really looked at what we discussed before, the state of Hawaii has a bunch of expectations for the local businesses. And what's really funny is that a lot of local businesses aren't really aligned with those expectations and don't really even see them as expectations. They've, they've just said, okay, whatever, you can do whatever the heck you want to me. So the state of Hawaii has got all these expectations and what they're really doing is say, I'm going to take this from you and I'm going to make it incredibly challenging for you to do business here. Any person in their right mind is going to say, no, I'm not into that. But because there's this like this cognitive disconnect between a state and you as a business person, you don't see it as this relationship. So if you saw it as this relationship and you saw it as the way I described it, where they're taking this from you and there's no agreement, 
I think most business people would leave that. The GDP of any state comes down to the goods and services that those people produce. And it's pretty evident out here in Hawaii that there's not a whole lot of production. There, there is some services out here. You come here and take a wonderful vacation and sit on a beach and, and drink uh, interesting drinks with fruit in them. And, and they do export some pineapples and there's some there's some Hawaii coffee on the on the Kona coast of the Big Island that's excellent. There, there are some products that they push out, macadamia nuts. They have a small export, but it's it's minuscule. There's nothing really produced. There's nothing of, of, of high value produced in the state of Hawaii. If you look at Oregon, where there's a lot of Hawaiians, a lot of the Hawaiian businessmen have actually worked and moved um, their businesses to Oregon. They've, they've, lost, they've left the state of Hawaii and they've moved to Oregon. Some very, very famous Hawaiians now live in, um, in Oregon. It's a better tax. There's a better tax structure. There's a better business. It's much more friendly to do business in Oregon than the state of Hawaii. And they produce the goods and services produced in Oregon are ex exceedingly greater than the GDP of Hawaii. I would say that it's, it's, it's a cautionary tale of not only pick where you do business, but pick the right kind of business so that you can potentially move. You, I, no one can predict what the tax rates are going to be 20 years from now or what kind of government is going to be in a, in a state. And, and that, that shows that California in the 80s is much different than California you know, 40 years later. But if you, if you go into the right businesses, if you own the right businesses, if you work in the right businesses or you fund the right, found the right businesses, you're going to have the potential to move that business across the border and maneuver around bad behavior, whether that's from individuals or from organizations or for governments. If, if there's enough bad behavior and you have the right business, you simply leave. I look at the commonalities between these three, let's call them stores of wealth. So we've got gold, it's a shiny metal. We've got a digital one or zero, it's a Bitcoin. And we have a non-fungible token. Uh, I probably need some. I probably need some help understanding that myself. All three of them do not produce free cash flow. If I hold a bar of gold, I hold a basket of bitcoins digitally, or I, I own a Gary V painting of a cartoon as a non-fungible token, they don't pay me to own them. So we hate all of them equally. Now there, there. I recognize there's utility. All of them. There is utility, and I, I'll break that down. There is utility to gold. It's a, it's a transfer of energy. It's a very conductive metal. It can transfer energy extremely efficiently. Uh, it's right up there with silver and copper and platinum. There's some utility to it. But me as an investor, as an investor is looking at a bar of gold, it does not pay me to hold it. It is a store of value temporarily. And we could go, we could go on for hours about, well, you're paying, you need to pay to have someone store that. Banks are not trustworthy. You're not going to store that in your local bank in the vault because there's bank holidays. So the, the exact moment where you're actually gonna need that gold, you're likely not gonna be able to access it. The bank is simply gonna be closed. Uh, second one, Bitcoin. There is utility in the blockchain. There's utility in having digital currencies. Uh, PayPal has definitely proved that there's, there's utility in being able to transfer money digitally. But all Bitcoin, there, there's no lack. There's no Bitcoin should not be valued based on scarcity. There is no scarcity of digital coins, and that's that's completely evident with all the coins that have been created. You can't you you cannot value a digital coin based on scarcity when you can anybody can create another coin. There's infinite amounts of coins. So for one coin to say that oh there's there's scarcity in this coin, no, the value of it is in the utility. The value is in a digital transfer and a public ledger. Again, no, no argument that there is, is incredible value to that as evidenced by Bitcoin. NFTs are interesting. We just, we just spent a few dollars ourselves on, a, on a, a digital copy of an icon to use on some of our products, on our, our digital products on our website and our, our social media accounts. It has utility. It's, it's communicating our brand. It's a beautiful logo. It's a beautiful icon. I, I, I can see that it's worth what we paid for it or even more. And I don't know if we own, we own, a, we own a license to use it. Basically we were, we were basically granted through purchase a license to, to, to use this. I can see an NFT has some utility. Again, if you own the trademark to a, a painting or a, an icon that can be used on all sorts of platforms as a marketing tool or as a brand, 
I can see how you could potentially use that as a business. But right now, most people are buying NFTs not on the free cash flow they produce, not on proven free cash flow. If I buy this, people want it and they're going to use it on their websites or in a digital space and they're going to pay me. So I'm getting this free cash. I'm getting this drip. They're buying it based on appreciation. Very dangerous. That, that word appreciation is extremely volatile. Any thoughts on that, Warner? A few thoughts. And it goes down to what you just said, which is appreciation. Appreciation is dangerous if it's put before cash flow. And what I mean by that is if your goal is to invest over 20, 30, 40 years, as you have, as you have explained to me, the true effectiveness of your investing is not determined over five years, it's determined over 10, 20, 30, and 40 years. If that's your game to create wealth, multiply generational wealth, as we discussed in our first episode, then it starts with cash flow. I mean, if you were on a homestead, let's go back to the basics. If you didn't have this fiat system, you're on a homestead, you wouldn't be going out and buying random like rocks with paintings on it, per se, right? You'd be focusing on your root cellar and storing up your reserves, uh, having an extra set of knives, having an extra set of tools, having a, a well, you know, a stocked water well. You'd be thinking about your survival, and you wouldn't be going off in these crazy on these crazy uh, hunts, right? So why do I talk about a, a homestead? Is because a homestead is no different than cash flow. Homestead provides you value. Cash flow provides you value to survive, to eat, to live. The challenge with appreciation is when you put it before cash flow, you're now going into behavioral economics, which is impossible, impossible to predict. Cash flow with a stable company like Oracle or like a Goldman Sachs, a company that's been around for a while, you can see consistency, persistency, predictability. The challenge with NFTs, Bitcoin, is Elon Musk backs out, thing drops 20,000. I mean, I don't remember how much it really dropped, but I mean, it used to be up at 60,000, now it's down at 30,000. That is not a reliable, stable asset based on cash flows. Cash flow is the indicator that tells you the value of the asset. And then appreciation is like holding it for the long term. That's like the cherry on top. But the whole market has got it flipped. It's appreciation. Yeah, they've, they've inverted the priority. The priority is always free cash flow. It's operating income that produces free cash flow. That's always the priority when you're looking at a business or an asset. So what is, if I own this for a month or I own it for a year or I own it the rest of my life, what is the drip? What am I getting off this asset? The appreciation only matters if you sell it. And, and Warner and I have no intention of selling the businesses that we go into. We we're, we're literally want to hold these forever. Our, our favorite holding period is to never sell it, hold it as long as possible. Appreciation then doesn't matter. That's not how we're going to get wealthy. If you, if you go into a business and you go, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this asset and I'm going to hold it forever. It's really irrelevant what rate it's it's appreciating it, and it doesn't matter if it appreciates 100% a year and you never sell it. You don't realize any of that appreciation. What actually moves the weight? What actually makes you um, able to maneuver? Gives you optionality? Gives you ability to build build reach, grow reach, expand? Is free cash flow? That's what matters the most. In fact, I could care less about appreciation as long as I'm drowning in free cash flow. If you told me this business will never appreciate, it'll just sit here. It'll be worth exactly what it's, this, this building, this, this brand, it's gonna be worth exactly what, what 100 years from now, it's gonna be worth exactly what you paid for adjusted for inflation. Oh, by the way, you're gonna do all sorts of wonderful things with the free cash flow that this, this thing's able to shoot off. That's a great business. Okay, so what? The building doesn't appreciate. The, the building's worth less 100 years. I mean, you could look in Detroit. You could look at buildings that were built 100 years ago. They were worth, adjusted for inflation, a lot more than they are today, that building. And that's okay. You know, you, that, you, you, you had no idea. Detroit used to be the industrial capital of, of the world, really. Uh, every, everything that was made, it was either Chicago or Detroit. Everything that was made in an industrial capacity, uh, it was made out of those two cities. It was an incredible city. You couldn't predict that. The predictability of a building appreciating in Detroit 100 years ago, it would have looked, looked like a, a reasonable prediction. 
that building's worth a whole lot more to, uh, today. A whole lot. It was worth a whole lot more in 1920 or 1921 than it is in 2021. But that's okay. You know, I, I can't predict the value of a real estate acquisition as well as I can predict free cash flow. Is this is this business? Is the underlying business going to throw off a tremendous amount of free cash flow? Okay, you can move. You can move down to Dallas. You can move to San Antonio. You can move to Austin. You can move to Houston. You can move that business. Okay, the real estate deal on that business wasn't great, but the free cash flow was. It'll work out. One final point is is an example I heard today from the owner of Artemis Capital. His last name I think is Cole. I forget his first name. He gave an example of how some of the best sports teams, like the Bulls, they they brought on Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman, I didn't know this, but the guy was a horrible shooter. Five feet out, he couldn't make a shot, save his life. Right? So you're like, well, why did they? Why would they bring a guy in like Dennis Rodman? Well, because every offense that guy came into, it became a world-class offense because the guy was phenomenal at rebounding. So if MJ, Michael Jordan, shot a shot, he missed, which is rare, then Dennis Rodman is right there to grab it and get it right back to him, and he's making a second shot. So why do I say that? Because it's all about performance. Cash flow is performance. Appreciation is like the cherry on the top. Appreciation is not consistent performance. You can't show me one, one stock in the face of the cert that has uh, consistent appreciation, but you can see a, a, a sort of a consistent cash flow with Oracle or other, you know, they double every cer certain year, six or seven years, Texas Instruments every four to five years. So why is that important? Well, with a guy like Dennis Rodman, if you're going to go, let's say, get like a player that was a much better shooter than Dennis Rodman, and he was like in the limelight, he was put up on a pedestal by the media. Well, you put him in with Michael Jordan, and they're fighting against each other, and the defense goes down into you know into the dregs. That's not performance. But the owner of that team, the coach of that team, they understood that Dennis Rodman, his performance, his value he brought was he would increase the whole offense of that team just because of him being there. And that's how you look at cash flow. That's how you look at performance. What's going to build the overall performance of your portfolio over 10, 20, 34 years? It's not going to be the shiny Bitcoin or NFT. It's going to be the steady Eddie, like the Dennis Robin that just supports the offense day in, day out. And uh, on closing, what we're going to talk about Beaufort, North Carolina to St. Thomas. How are you making that trip? Oh, yeah, yeah. Go back. Hit it. Hit it. Yeah, let, let me just close out last thoughts on uh, Bitcoin, gold, and NFTs. I just encourage the folks, the younger folks listening right now, there is no predictability. There's no consistency in those assets. Stay, stay away from them. If you want to stack up some fiat, which I always encourage people to do, especially when there's nothing smart to buy, um, just good old fashioned money market account. It pays a little tiny, tiny interest. So it's actually giving you a little bit more every month and it's stable. There's stability and predictability. <clears throat> there is absolutely no st stability or predictability in these digital coins and I'd, I'd really recommend until there's until there's basically three of them and everything else, it all becomes merged into three and there's price consistency, stay out of them, stay away from them. They're a, they're a tulip bulb uh, mania situation that, that basically is occurring right now. So yeah, going into uh, topic number six, it's Beaufort, North Carolina, St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. It has to do with dreaming big. If you want to accomplish things and you want to keep moving and, and keep making forward progress, you need to have some dreams. You need to think big. Think about how do you how do you how do you acquire an airplane? How do you buy a wonderful boat? Both Warner and I, you know, have some dreams about running some some you know basically ocean going vessels. Uh, me specifically, a sport fishing yacht that uh, you could take from Beaufort, North Carolina, directly. VFR down to the, the Virgin Islands. You don't need to check in in the wintertime. So you go down there for three months and fish. You don't need to check into customs. You can literally leave from North Carolina and go to a U.S. territory, which is the U.S. Virgin Islands without checking into customs. And it gives you another, another movement plan, another option in your life. If things are going south up in the lower 48, you know, we've got these the, we, we have an enormous country, really. If you can expand the map and really expand your mind, we have every, everything from Maine to Florida, let's say 
Southern California to Washington. We have a huge state of Alaska. We have Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, and we have Hawaii. We have Guam, and we have America Samoa. We have a massive amount of real estate to go explore and travel, and, and no no visa, no passport required. But you're going to need some assets with some long legs to get you out there. Any thoughts on goals and kind of dreaming big and expanding your thoughts on um, on travel? Yeah. I really love how you you describe Beaufort, North Carolina, St. Thomas as dreaming big. I thought you were just going to give me a nautical plan, so that's great. And what it really, what I was really thinking of when you were just describing sort of the layout and and, and what you're really describing is we, we we as humans have a tendency to get really like get the blinders on. We just see what we see. And when you share with me, hey, the U.S. is a lot bigger than you think, that really opened my eyes. Another thing, when you dream big, everyone's not going to be on board, whether it's the U.S. government, whether it's your local government, whether it's family and friends. When you dream big, you may not be, you may not be, it may not look the way it's always looked in your local economy or your local municipality. And what I mean by that is you may not, you may not associate with the U.S. government anymore. You may chart your own path because they're doing things you're not in agreement with or you may not associate with your municipality anymore and the ability to be i know this sounds a little vague but we'll we'll go deeper on this in another podcast your ability to be mobile and dream big those are two huge things in this coming world just it's like mario like you said it's the ability to have options there there's nothing better than options especially in a world that's like turning down the screws on your freedom options is essential and the essential component of having options the first step is to dream big if you're not dreaming big you're not going to see any options because the whole idea of dreaming big is you're not thinking about this myopic myopic i think that's the right word view you're thinking of this view that's expanding out just like you describe the the breadth and depth of the u.s Final thoughts, I'll let you finish it out. Yeah, one of excellent points. Options, if, you, if you're creating options in your life, you're creating freedom. You're, you're able to maneuver around misbehavior, whether that's local misbehavior, municipalities or governments, large governments. Um, when, we're, when we're looking at nautical movement, it's really about exploring and expanding the map but as you get older you tend to your world tends to shrink you can see this in people that are they're aging is they're really going from their house to the grocery store they get their their hair cut in the same place and their, their world starts shrinking um that's that's how that's that's how businesses get smaller too is they're, they're they, they become comfortable and they they just do the they do what's easy they go on the routes that are easy the way to stay healthy and, and active and and to grow is to continually look at bigger maps constantly. It's why these guys that are at a different level than we are, they're talking about spaceships. They're talking about designing spaceships to, to blast out and look at other things in this, in this uh, galaxy that we're in. I think, you know, at our level, it's big, big enough, you know, it's just, just see how could, how could we get from Beaufort, North Carolina to this, to St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands directly. Um, there's a there's a very interesting waypoint out in the Atlantic, and it's I believe it's 65 west, comma 25 north, and it's a it's a path that boats take. It's a it's a checkpoint, so it's about 13 about a thousand miles, 1300 miles from North Carolina, and then it'd be 400 extra miles down to St. Thomas, and it's actually faster to leave from North Carolina than it would be to take the intercoastal waterway all the way down to Florida, and then if you look at a map. The U.S. Virgin Islands are actually way further east than Florida. It's they're not people think of the Caribbean as south of Florida. It's actually much further east. You were out in Barbuda this winter, uh, exploring the West Indies. It's much further east than people realize. But um, it just it's it's a strategy. It's, it's a strategy to continue to expand. Is to stick, think bigger and think about bigger goals. So that's my last point on that, Warner. It's been a great conversation. Anything anything to add before we sign off? Yeah, one final thing to add. First of all, I'd like to thank you for your wonderful comments. It's been a pleasure talking with you tonight. And I'd like to add for the listeners, if there's any topic that you'd like us to create a whole uh, episode on, 
please comment in the comment section below. And if you're interested in this, in this content, we invite you to subscribe to our channel. We thank you very much for your time, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Red to Black podcast. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to our podcast. If you would like to connect with us in the future, you can find us on LinkedIn. Simply search for Werner Minchel or Mario Parzino. Also, you can find a link to our LinkedIn profiles in the profile section of the podcast. Thank you again for listening and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.